This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. This is going to be a busy day at Hamilton City Hall, as we know. We uh, had Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger on and a couple of representatives of Waterloo Region yesterday to uh, talk about uh, their journey uh, along the LRT. And uh, they're a lot further down, obviously. They're about one year away from actually having the trains running in KW. Uh, We're not that far, obviously. But today is another meeting of uh, City Council in which they are going to be accepting delegations. And uh, you've seen a lot of action on social media. We've talked a lot about it here on the radio station. A lot of stuff in in all media right now about what might be happening. And and a great deal of speculation as to how the vote's going to go. My opinion... I don't think they're even going to vote today. I, I just got this gut feeling, having seen the way things have gone so far, that uh, they're going to accept the delegations, and at last count there were over 40 of them that are going to be heard today at this meeting. It would probably save us a lot of time if I read the names of the people from Hamilton that aren't going to be there today. I, it just seems as if this is going to go on and on and on and on. But it is an important debate. That's it, this. This obviously is talking about a billion dollar investment in the city, and the impact that that may have. And ultimately, uh, you can talk about this. I can talk about this. The guests we're going to bring on in the next couple of minutes, uh, who have very strong opinions on this, need to be heard as well. But ultimately, it's going to be the sixteen people around that city council table that are going to make this decision as to what's going to happen here. And can we influence their decisions? Well, we'll talk about that with our guests. With uh, this meeting going on today, it actually gets underway in about 20 minutes down in City Hall. But we wanted to talk about some of the folks and with some of the people that are going to be involved. Sarah Wary Poljanski is uh, the founder of Hamilton Hamiltonians Against High Hydro. She's been a guest on our program before on that issue, which is yet to be resolved in many people's minds, but also very uh, strong opinions about what's happening with the LRT file, too. Sarah, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's uh, get right down to the nitty-gritty here. What's your stand on the issue? What's happened on the debate so far, and, and how do you feel it's going to go? Um, I don't know. See, I'm I'm not for it. I'm not how some people, I don't like the term anti-LRT, because I'm for public transit. I just don't believe in this project for this city. Um, how I think it might go, I don't know. From what I read, there's about two or three councillors that their opinion will sway whether or not this moves forward after whether they pass the environmental assessment or not. Now, there are some people that would suggest that, well, if you're for public transit, how can you not be for LRT? What are your concerns about this project, the way it's been it's presented so far? Well, the issue is, and this is what I, when, when people say, well, we voted on it, you know, a hundred times. Well, we've voted on it a hundred times, and it's changed a hundred times. You know, I sat in an LRT meeting that was hosted by Metrolinx, and by the time I got home, that's when they they got rid of the um, the line that went from the lake. The, what, what is it, the VA line, whatever? Um, well, they call it the spur line, yeah, down to the waterfront. Yeah, you know what I mean? So I, I literally was sitting in a meeting asking questions and you know no this is a go we this money is there yada yada by the time i got home the cbc had announced you know that thing was canceled you know it was supposed to go to the mall that's been canceled so all of these votes that everyone says you know we voted on it yeah but it's changed if i go into an agreement to purchase a home and every time i meet my builder they say you know what we're going to go instead of two bathrooms you're going to get one okay well i'm going to have to reconsider do i want this house you know next time well instead of your living room being you know 20 by 30 it's now 12 by 10 you know, every time these changes are made, to me, that means you can change your mind. The fact that 
this money, it seems that we don't have this money. Some of the councillors seem to think there's a bank account already with this billion dollars just waiting for us. You know, the province doesn't even have it because they're relying on one sale of the uh, 60% from Hydro One, which um, I think is maybe 20, if even that, right? And other money that goes into it, I've read the carbon tax. They're looking at a couple billion dollars a year. They're going to get that they're going to take money from that as well and put in. So we know the carbon tax has just started. So the thing is, is this is kind of this fiat money that we don't even have, so it's borrowed. And if we don't have the ridership, I keep asking who's going to subsidize this. Is it going to be subsidized through my property taxes? Is it going to cost more to ride the bus? If it's going to cost more, and we're saying this bus is for students, you know, marginalized residents that have, you know, a low income and things such as this, how is this helping them? To me, it's an aesthetic thing. Instead of riding the bus, they want to train because it sounds good, right? It's a status thing. It's no longer about public transit. For some people, it's a prestige. It's, you know what I mean? Oh, we've got this LRT, but yeah, we've got this LRT, but now if people can't afford to ride it, if property taxes are going up, you know, you're hurting the city economically because we now have to take money that we could be using in other areas to fund this train. So well, that's a concern uh, to me. But the reality is every municipality f- has to subsidize public transit. Public transit is, doesn't pay for itself in Hamilton or Toronto or Ottawa or any other city for that matter. Well, no, I already know. Like, I've pulled out mine. I pay about $300 a year on a transit levy. But my issue is, is how much is this going to go up to? if we need to increase it. And not only that, is when, how much of the money from that, because we know too, like with the Presto system that's run by Metrolinx, every year they're going to start taking more money off of that. So it comes down to two, is how much money is going to be going into this train and is going to be reallocated to the provincial government and not our own transit through the municipality. There's all of these questions that you always get a different answer to, and then it's switched, and it's like, well, we can make a deal about it. Well, no, before I see the councillors put their name you know, on that dotted line, I want these answers, because ultimately, even though, oh, the province is paying for it, no, the taxpayer is paying for it. Just like the argument, well, would you rather that money go to, you know, this city? Well, it doesn't matter. If they can use it and they have the ridership, I would rather a city who's going to be able, and it's going to be a viable option for them, to have it. But if it's not going to be one for us and it's going to cause an economic problem, I will pass, right? Like, I live by my means. And if we don't have the means and the ridership for this, you know, whoever else wants it, go ahead and take it. Because if you can afford it and you have the ridership and it's going to help your city, you know what, then it's for you. But I don't see it being something Hamilton needs right at the second, especially when we have areas that are underserved. And we have, where if you go to the outskirts of the city on a bus, we're paying for people to be taxied to their next destination because the bus ends at a certain point, right? So it's like, why aren't we moving those people around, you know, in other areas? If this bus, the bus is working fine. People are getting on the bus, going down King. You know, there's no issue from my understanding. Why aren't we moving other people and people to get them out of their cars. I'm not going to stop driving my car because an LRT has been put in down on King Street. One of the points, and I'm sure you've heard these in the discussion that's gone on so far, Sarah, and I'm sure if you're going to be down at City Hall, you're going to hear it a thousand times again this morning and, and through this afternoon and probably into this evening, is that, listen, you've, you've talked about moving people. Uh, and the advocates for LRT will tell you that's only part of what this is all about. The other part is economic growth and economic stimulus. Do you buy into that? Okay, so economic stimulus. Let's talk about economics right now. My kids will not be able to purchase a home in the city of Hamilton. I purchased my house in 2007 for $210,000. My neighbor's house just sold for 570. Okay? 
when you make these upgrades, and some people will call it, you know, gentrification, they want to do urbanization in the core. So we're going to bring in condos and all of this, and what it's going to do is bring in people from outside of the city, and it's going to raise the taxes because you now are bringing people with a higher income into the city. So what happens now is the real estate agents can raise the rates of rent, of the prices of homes, and all of these other things. So what's that going to mean? It's going to mean existing residents in the city are going to have higher property taxes because their properties have now increased in value. And if I'm not selling my home, all that means to me is my property taxes are higher. Okay? If I want to move, I cannot move because the prices of houses have already doubled. And if you keep increasing the prices because you're bringing in people with a higher income and you can make more money off of them, it makes it harder for people who aren't getting a raise, you know, who are on a fixed income, you know, especially renters. Because this is the thing I love to hear is, well, renters pay the most property taxes because it's fixed into their rental prices, right? Well, then how is this helping renters? Because what we're seeing now is people can't buy homes. Like, if you're starting a family, it's hard for you to buy a home because of the cost. So what that, that means is more people are looking to rent. So that means that people can put up the price of rent because they know people with a higher income are looking to rent, which means people with a lower income are going to have a hard time renting. So we need more subsidized housing, which means we need to pay more property taxes to subsidize this. So all this becomes is a vicious circle of having to subsidize things because the city wants to, okay, yeah, we want to make the city better. We want to expand the core, put all these things in, make it vibrant, yada, yada, yada. But in the long run, what's this going to do to existing residents? And I think this is why you're seeing when people say, oh, it's the seniors. They don't they want, want to move on to the times. It's because they probably know. They probably know what happens because they've had experience in life and seen how turnarounds happen and things like this, right? They've seen that. We had a streetcar, and they ripped it out. You know, why are we paying? Why did we pay to put one in, take it out, and now we want to put another one in? So these are the things when people start saying, you know, oh, these old people are stopping my future. Well, no, it's because they've seen this thing. They understand what's happening. You know, if you actually read some of these policies of where this LRT is coming from, you know, it was uh, Move Ontario 2020, and then now it's turned into Moving Ontario Forward, and then how it ties into the, um, the, how the Golden Horseshoe, how they've restricted development. This whole system is set up to fail, because all it's going to do is increase the cost of living, increase property, increase property taxes, you know, the transit system will have to go up in price to fund it if people don't ride it, right? So it's all of these issues. You can't look and just single things out. But if that's your point, Sarah, uh, are you suggesting then that we maintain the status quo and we don't seek economic growth, economic development, we don't try to bring new money and new businesses? No, we need to do that. But what we need to do, if I was looking to bring in businesses, I would go down, and this is in my speech, I would go back down to the bayfront and I would put more industry in. We need jobs that the citizens of Hamilton can get. If you're telling me we're going to bring in more health care, more this, more this, that's just going to bring people from the outskirts in Toronto in, you know what I mean? How is that helping our citizens? How many steelworkers do we have that either have forced to been retired or aren't working in trades people, right? And when I love when they say, oh, this will help the trades. This will help the trades, what, for a year or two while it's being constructed? You know, that's, no, we need long-term jobs. We don't need, you know, a brief stunt. And who's to say that they're not going to bring in 
someone from Kitchener or existing areas that have built the LRT already that have the experience and know what they're doing, especially if we have a cap of how much we can spend. So when they go to the bidders, they're not going to be looking at who's the highest cost, right? They're going to be looking to cheap out. Look at the stadium with Infrastructure Ontario. We've got a budget. So what do we do? We hire people and they don't do a good job and speakers are falling off and thank God they haven't killed someone and the city gets sued. And as a property taxpayer, I now have to pay for that because of cheap labor and garbage being done. Right. This is all comes from the provincial government who we know doesn't have money and are rushing to do things before the next election because they're afraid they're not going to get in. Like, it's a mess. All right. Let me let me ask you something. Let let me ask you something. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of your comments here, Sarah, that uh, one of the things that was a concern to you was the fact that there have been so many changes Uh, instead of the McMaster to Eastgate. You know, we all of a sudden the spur line down to the waterfront and they've taken that out. Now there's. Well, who knows? And, of course, the Queenston traffic circle and on and on and on it goes. Was there a time when you were supportive of this before all those changes were enacted? Yeah, when, when I first looked at it and thought, okay, well, this is good. You know what I mean? We're, we're going to upgrade. It's envir- You know, people that know me, and this is why a lot of the pro-LRT people are getting mad at me, because I'm for, you know, helping poverty, uh, the environment, all of these things. But I say to them, you know what, I'm not for something that's going to be an economic dumpster fire and something that keeps getting changed. And then when I started to look, because, you know, I'm thinking, well, what's going to happen when you have all of these lanes of traffic that are now down to two? And it's only down to one heading north from the east end of the city because you're not going to get all of those people out of their car. They're not just going to say, oh, well, I'll take the LRT. Like, I've been down to the actual GO station to talk to people who are involved in this. It's not that I've just read stuff and made up my mind and I'm biased. I've actually went to meetings and sat with some of these people from Metrolinx, from the city, and talked to them. And that I can't get the answers from them that would help me make a better decision. So I'm like, if you can't provide me those answers, you're either hiding it or you don't want me to know because it's a bad deal, right? So a lot of this is like, how are we helping the environment when you now have however many cars idling in traffic trying to get to work? That's one of my biggest things. How is that, how is that helping the environment? But it, in if the I, original plan uh, from McMaster to Eastgate, it, that same scenario that you've just described probably would have happened then too. Yeah, it would have happened. So that was one of my original things is this is not environmentally friendly. But the fact is they keep shortening the line. You know, yeah, that's a big issue too because if we're moving people, so here's the thing. I say to people, I used to live down by Eastgate and I used to have to get on the King bus, come all the way downtown, take the Upper James to get to work. Okay, so I'm like, yeah, that would have been beneficial. But here's the thing as well. It used to be um, called rapid transit, right? But then they started to add stops. And they're like, oh, well, it's not going to be that rapid. And then on top of it, oh, it's better for people because the bus is lower. So if you have a disability, you can get on. Well, that's great. But guess what? The bus stops are further apart. So if I have a disability, I might be able to get on easier. But I have now a further distance to walk when I get off if my destination is not right at that stop. I got about a minute left here. What do you want to see council do ultimately here? You got 60 seconds. Um, I, I wouldn't put it through. Until we can get all of the answers and we know that, you know, if we don't get the ridership, ultimately it comes to the taxpayers. We're going to have to fund it. But I want them to maybe put it off until we do more research. They do more research. And we we know for a fact that, you know, this is going to help us and it's not going to cause an economic problem for the people in this city. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Interesting uh, debate uh, the other day on uh, the Global Morning Show on Global TV, uh, where uh, Mark Emery, uh, who is uh, in some circles known as the Prince of Pot here in Canada, 
uh, made a statement that actually uh, smoking pot makes people better drivers. Well, uh, and that was uh, an eyebrow raiser in many circles. Well, uh, former Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair, who of course now works for the uh, Trudeau government and is the point man on the uh, uh, marijuana policy and the bill that's going forward right now, immediately took exception to that uh, and said that a recent Canadian study indicated that uh, smoking pot actually increases the likelihood of being involved in an accident fourfold, that according to Blair. Uh, He says it clearly impairs a person's ability to operate a motor vehicle in a different way other than alcohol, but definitely the science is unequivocal and clear. End of quote. That's Bill Blair responding to Mark Emery. Well, uh, we've had a number of people that have weighed in on this on both sides of the issue on social media over the last little while. A fascinating uh, op-ed piece, though, by David Booth, senior writer with Post Media Driving, driving driving.ca. And uh, David joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about uh, the research and the information he's found. David, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, good to be here, Bill. Uh, it's kind of fun to watch uh, Bill Blair and Mark Emery going back at each other on this. Uh, but you've uh, uh, decided to put some factual information into this. Talk to us about what you found. Well, the interest. Uh, first off, I want to qualify because you know uh, both Bill and uh, Mark come from opposite ends of the spectrum. I have no uh, dog in the show. I do not smoke marijuana. I may have. Uh, how will I say it? I lit up a blunt or two in university, uh, but uh, I haven't smoked marijuana for 20 or 30 years. So, uh, you know, this isn't for my own benefit. Uh, I did a lot of research into this for an article, and I went in thinking that it, all the research would show me that um, uh, that there was impairment. There were factual statistics that would show that accidents increased and people were impaired uh, under the effects of THC and shouldn't drive. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know what uh, studies Mr. Blair is referring to, but I couldn't find a single one that definitively said um, uh, marijuana and cannabis will cause uh, more accidents and more fatalities on the road. In fact, I, I found more or less the opposite. Um, uh, first off, there were simulation studies where people uh, actually smoked marijuana. They actually quantified how much THC and how many breaths and how long they had to hold the breath. That's how scientific it was. And then they would uh, drive uh, simulators. And it turns out that in all of these tests um, like that, they uh, didn't notice any um, uh, detrimental effect to the driving. And even when they simulated accidents like emergency maneuvers and situations, there was no downside. And uh, unfortunately, uh, for the people that say that there's definitely a a problem with uh, uh, driving under the influence of cannabis, there doesn't seem to be a lot of factual information that says otherwise. This is a, a, amazing to an awful lot of people, though, when, when you look at some of the data, and I encourage people to give the website in a second, Dave, so they can read you the piece of the films. But it, it just seems contradictory to, I guess, maybe the mythology. Counterintuitive. Yeah. Counterintuitive. Exactly. It, it is. I, I, like, it come is. on, you're stoned, man. How can you possibly drive a car, man? Big, about, okay, one thing that they found is, okay, if there were, was any impairment and any reduction of capabilities, it was more than compensated by how cautious people get. Uh, uh, unlike marijuana, uh, alcohol, which makes you more aggressive, of course, we all know um, marijuana generally makes you more subdued. And, it's, and, and some of the situations uh, or some of the studies and some of the people that are saying this are not 
again, potheads. In fact, uh, the uh, American um, Automobile Association is quoted as saying, it's simply not possible to today to determine whether a driver is impaired based solely on the amount of the drugs, they mean THC, in the body. Okay, that NHTSA, that's the American National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, basically says it is inadvisable to try and predict the effects based on blood THC concentrations alone. Uh, In fact, one of the interesting things that I also found out is some of the testing uh, methods are very flawed. Uh, Blood and saliva, for instance, test for the metabolites of marijuana, not marijuana itself. While marijuana, um, like alcohol itself, goes up and, and, and leaves the body fairly quickly, the metabolites last a long time. Days so at a time, I'm me- told, right? Yeah, yeah. As one critic put it, um, if you're testing for metabolites, it's basically going to tell you, yes, you had a glass of wine, but it could have been three days ago. Okay? Uh, and, and, and that's to nobody's benefit. Um, the other thing is that uh, the only... Um, semi-reliable, the, the most reliable, I won't say it's 100% reliable, according to Scientific Journal, is a breathalyzer test. But that's quite some time away um, um, from getting universal uh, adoption. And, f- and then what they have to do is, is because the breathalyzer aspect would be completely new, they have to correlate how much um, they measure versus how much that represents in terms of intoxication so they can actually set a reasonable limit. Um, it's 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 quite interesting. It, it, in fact, the only speaking, of Mr. Blair back again on his uh, contention. The only study that I found that even remotely, and it was it turned out to be erroneous, but even remotely said there was a more uh, accidents with uh, marijuana was in Washington, and they noticed after they um, uh, legalized it in uh, statewide um, that there were more people after the fact. With a uh, with cannabis in the system that were um, in accidents and and or in fatal accidents with uh, THC in their bloodstream, but it turns out that's just because so many more people were smoking THC. It was more. It wasn't causal. It was just indicative of more people smoking uh, 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 marijuana. And lastly, there was a study called the Medical Marijuana Laws: Traffic Fatalities and Alcohol Consumption that showed that 19 states that legalized marijuana saw an 8 to 11% decrease in traffic fatalities. And I'm pretty sure that's where Mark Emery is getting his, uh, his uh, statistics from. But can you, from that stat, though, can you extrapolate that, well, you're a safer driver then? Because I know Chief Blair, and I've heard this from other cops in the, on the road, too, though, David, that, that have said, you know, I hear that from guys that are impaired with alcohol, too. They always say, oh, I'm a better driver because I'm more relaxed. Yeah. Now, the problem, the, the, the problem for that, and, that's, and, and, and I agree with that, the, the problem uh, with that statement that, that it's true about alcohol, the, the problem is, is this is an anecdotal. These are all very, very well-done studies. Like, people have measured and simulated people uh, in driving situations and seen what the reactions are. And they're actually, in some cases, better than they were when they were not stoned, in that they were... Uh, they might have been, instead of driving 120 kilometers an hour, they were driving 100 kilometers an hour, so that even if the reaction time was one millisecond slower, the net effect was still uh, better overall. Um, I I mean, I I realize I'm saying something kind of counterintuitive and heretical, and uh, to be honest, I don't have a vested interest 
and having a whole bunch of stoners driving on the road. I, 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 I still, still, after seeing all these tests and all these studies, I'm a little skeptical myself. That being said, to claim that there's a whole body of evidence that says that marijuana will lead to uh, impaired driving, causing more accidents and more fatalities. It's completely erroneous. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Blair, but uh, I, I read at least 20 to 25 studies, and I couldn't find even one that, when you've dug down, uh, basically uh, proved that there was a, a correlation. I mean, I'll say this. Every one of the study um, uh, people, they're all universities and doctors and everything else, uh, always qualified it and, and said, well, I'm not sure I want to be the person calling it for to be legalized, but the evidence I have says there's not a pro- going to be a problem. See, I'm, and, in, I'm, in, in, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't have a dog in this hunt either, uh, you know, no. I, and, which is why I'm fascinated by the topic and, and the reaction to it. And, and when I read your piece, uh, the science behind uh, the data and, and, and your conclusions as a result of this, I, I was quite frankly amazed at this. But there's, there's an argument to be made here because it does seem, as you articulated, it's, it's counterintuitive to what we've always thought, that, you know, you're stoned, uh, your reaction times are down. That's the same as somebody who's impaired. So as a result, obviously, you shouldn't be behind the wheel. And I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as Emory does and say, no, it makes you a better driver. I'm just saying maybe it, it's a zero result here. Maybe it washes yeah. out. I'll say two things to that. One is that I got a ton of comments from this article. It was about five, six months ago that I wrote it. And uh, all of the people basically, in very less polite terms, uh, that disagree with me, in less polite terms, said what you just said. I, impairment is impairment. It, it was a little bit like getting beat by comments, at least from the negative side, in terms of... Uh, in terms of like they were very very angry and you know like i just know that and i was impaired once uh from marijuana when i was 12 and so it must be terrible and everything else nobody could come up with any um uh, scientific data they said there was when they when i'd write them letters and ask uh, you know emails and say where's your data they'd either say i don't have it or um, they re- referenced the Washington study that said more people had marijuana in their bloodies, b- blood. Oh, even even Chief Blair, former Chief Blair, that says you know there was a Canadian study. That's as, as descriptive as he was. He said a Canadian study. He didn't say where it was from. Actually, I, I, you know what? Uh, I will tell you that there's a Canadian Senate study, and I, I'm going to quote here. You'll forgive me if I don't sound uh, you know uh, I, I'm reading now. It says. While evidence of impairment from the consumption of cannabis has been reported by studies using laboratory tests, driving simulators, and on-road observations, these results do not necessarily reflect impairment in terms of performance effectiveness since few studies report increased accident risk. That's not anybody. That's our Canadian Senate. Okay? That's our Canadian Senate. Ours. Not American not some stoner in a lab in a, in a university in second year. That's our Canadian Senate. The one, the one exception to this is that um, th- that same study found that um, when you combined alcohol and marijuana, which may be where Mr. Blair is coming from, in that they didn't, um, they didn't separate the people who only smoked marijuana from those that smoked marijuana and drank. When you combine the two, 
uh, the effect is more than double the combination, if you see what I'm saying. In other words, they said that, if, uh, you know, if, if somebody smoked marijuana, they should lower the alcohol limit even to 40 milligrams um, per 100 milliliters of blood from 80. So maybe, you know, Mr. Blair is mistaking the combination of the two for just the causes of marijuana. I don't know. But that's our own Senate studying um, studying the effects. So I don't know where he's getting his information. David, with this controversy, and I think that's probably an apt description of what's gone on here right now, does, does it give us pause for just a second to wonder if the government's got all their, their boats in a row here before they decided to rush through with this legislation? I, I, you know, I can only speak to the to the to the um, driving aspect. You know, I, yeah, okay. again, I don't have a I, I, I don't have a, 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 a dog in this in this race. I uh, I really don't care myself. I'm, I'm not going to go out and smoke some. Um, personally, if you're asking me, I, I can only answer on a personal basis uh, from my youth. Uh, given a choice between only smoking marijuana and only smoking uh, drinking alcohol, which is better for just uh, general peace and order? Smoking marijuana. Now, you asked me as a, as a professional auto journalist, which would I rather face? A whole slew of drivers um, stoned on marijuana or drunk on alcohol? I'll take the marijuana boys every, every single time. Okay, there's no question in my mind about that. Uh, I, I may be skeptical a little bit about the fact that uh, we should allow you know, uh, uh, driving after you smoke marijuana, even though I have studies that say there's no problem, I may be skeptical a little bit about that. But given a choice between um, a whole bunch of stoners and a whole bunch of drunks on the road, I'll take the stoners every single time. I want to know what road that is you're driving on that you've got to make that choice. <laughs> Listen, where is is the uh, the editorial still up on the uh, web page? It's some. It's a, yeah. It's definitely up there. Uh, I sent the link uh, in, and you can uh, link to that. And considering that it's starting to uh, um, to uh, be more topical again, I should probably get my people to uh, to uh, to reinvigorate it and actually put it uh, put it uh, at the f- uh, top of our rotator, if you know what I mean, because it really is important uh, time. You know, I I, I will say. I, I, again, I can't speak to what um, you know, Mr. Blair has found. But too often, the, um, I find that the police can, um, uh, people talk off the top of their head with nothing but, again, the, the logic of impairment is impairment. Uh, I can remember having a meeting with um, with uh, former OPP chief Fantino about the speed limits and you know um, uh, dangerous driving at 150 uh, kilometers an hour and all that kind of thing. And neither had he read all the studies about speeding, obviously from places like Europe, and how it correlated to actual safety and accidents. He didn't want to know. I mean, I had a long meeting and chat about him, and he literally, when I asked him about the studies, didn't know about them. And then when I offered to give them to him and 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 educate him, he didn't want them. He did. You know, it it, it, it smacks. Um, to me, at least of a moralistic uh, aspect, yeah, and that's rather that's... than scientific. And you know, again, I want to say it: I don't smoke pot, and I, you know, I'm, I'm I won't say I'm certainly not for driving uh, with marijuana, but uh, to ban such a thing based on your own personal moralistic um, 
concepts of what should and shouldn't be done. It doesn't outweigh the scientific evidence, I think. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The other side of the coin, uh, Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, who joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about where we are and where we might be going on this. Good morning, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good, Bill. Thank you, and and uh, an excellent choice on the intro music, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's my producer, Giefko, always thinking I'm one step ahead of us here. Let's uh, let's talk about where we are. You wrote a, an interesting piece in Raise the Hammer the other day about uh, some of the, uh, the the rhetoric that's going back and forth right now. Let me ask you if I can just move up a little bit and look at this from fifty thousand feet. Are we moving the yard sticks at all? I mean, you're going to be there today. Uh, CHML's Ken Mann is going to be there today. Ken's used to marathons. That's why we sent him down there today. But it's, uh, are we going to hear anything that we haven't heard before? Is anybody going to change their minds on this issue? Uh, do you mean around the council table? Yeah. Uh, I hope a few councillors will make up their minds. Um, you know, because uh, there's, I mean, this is a project that has had uh, unanimous or near unanimous support consistently over and over again since 2007, 2008. Suddenly, when success is actually in our grasp, we're getting a lot of the kinds of um, misgivings and second thoughts and cold feet and anxieties that any big important decision is going to generate. And this is no different. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not bizarre that people are suddenly scared and nervous about making a big decision. The important thing for council is to take a deep breath, remember why they've been voting for it all along, remember the arguments in in favor of it haven't changed, and the arguments against it, no new arguments or new evidence has come up to undermine or undercut any of the reasons they've been supporting it all along. You know, there are a few questions that still need to be answered, but the way you answer those questions is by going through the process that council is being asked to go through. It's, it's absurd to say, well, we can't vote to move this forward because we don't know the answer to the next step, when you can't get that answer until you get to the next step. Well, and let's talk about the logistics of that for just a second, because one of the consistent things, and, and Sarah, who was on just before you uh, on the program this morning, uh, reiterated this, about, and we just got a, a tweet from Manny about this too, saying, well, what about operating costs? Uh, my understanding, and I'm, I'm not in the construction business, but I spent a, a little bit of time in politics, nine years on city council, is you can't estimate uh, what the operating costs are going to be until you put this out to tender, and you can't put it out to tender until you get the environmental assessment done. You're absolutely right, Bill. And so we can't get an exact number for what the operating costs are going to be. But we can get a pretty good idea for the, the range of costs that we're going to be dealing with. You know, and one of the ways we can do that is we can look at similar LRT systems that have recently been signed that have a similar kind of, of uh, operating cost uh, structure that Hamilton's going to have. The most obvious example, of course, literally half an hour up the road is Waterloo. They've got a 19-kilometer LRT line their operating and maintenance costs are going to be $8.5 million a year. So if we scale from that to our 11-kilometer LRT line, you're looking at around somewhere in the area of around $5 million a year to operate that. Now, we're right now paying $5.5 million a year to operate the B-Line Express Bus, which the LRT is going to replace. So on a base level, we're looking at an operating cost for LRT that's going to be basically the same, possibly cheaper than what we're paying right now for the main bus line that it's going to replace. Now, uh, Paul Johnson, the LRT director, has said there will be some other operating costs involved, again, some special maintenance costs along the corridor that will change a little bit because of the LRT. But that's the kind of the order of magnitude we're looking at. We're looking at something that's going to be roughly in the ballpark of what we're already paying. 
and it's going to be a system that's going to generate a lot more riders and a lot more revenue. I had uh, on the program yesterday uh, the regional chair, of course, from Waterloo, Ken Sealing, was here, and along with Tom Galloway, one of the councillors who has been uh, riding herd on the uh, the LRT file up in, in Waterloo region, and they they basically said what you've just said, and they, they gave us a hard and fast number about what their operating costs were, but we have to again remind our listeners that they're already near the end of their process, but they didn't know that uh, until they went out to tender, and of course then they could sit down and crunch some numbers. Why aren't those numbers resonating? Why do people still say, well, that's not good enough for me? That's a really good question. I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I think part of it is that you have people who are opposed to this project who are basically latching on to every single uncertainty and kind of squeezing it for all of its worth. It's, it's fear-mongering, right? So they're, they're trying to make people scared about that unknown. And so you kind of maximize the, the fear factor. Another part of it is that there's a, there's a kind of a mentality in Hamilton, excuse me, that I've noticed over the years where we seem to feel like the, the rules that apply in other cities for how cities operate somehow wouldn't work here. You know, you heard about it with the Canon Cycle Track. Well, people won't actually use it. Well, in fact, they are using it. A staff report just came out finding that ridership has increased dramatically, and it came in, you know, $300,000 under budget. Well, if we build a bike share, nobody will use it. Well, our bike share ridership is through the roof. We've got 12,000, 13,000 members. Again and again, we think that things that work in other places aren't going to work here. And then when they do work here, you know, we're, we're confused and surprised by it. This is the exact same kind of situation. This is how these things work in a variety of urban contexts, including cities that are a lot like Hamilton. There's no reason to think it won't work the same way here. You have to, and again, look at what's gone on with the history of, of rapid transit or, or light rail transit, any one of these things. And I, I happen to be in Calgary, where I'm back in the early 1980s, because a lot of people point to that city and say, well, look at their system. Why can't we do something like that? Uh, when I was there, and I think it was about 1981, uh, it the, the the right first of all it was elevated, but secondly it only ran through the downtown core. I mean, it was very short. You can't build uh, a you know a twenty five or thirty kilometer trail like this in 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 a matter of a couple of years. It takes time. There are add ons to it as they do with subway systems and other cities and everything else. It just seems that for many people that are expressing opposition here, it's all or nothing at all. Well, and and that of course is is a, an easy way to ensure that a project never goes forward is no matter what you get, insist that it's not enough. Uh, you know, I, for example, you know, we're, we're getting um, LRT on, in the first phase for McMaster to Queenston Traffic Circle. And some people are saying, you know what, this should go all the way to Eastgate Square. I agree 100%. I, I agree enthusiastically with that. But the province is not going to agree to fund an extension to Eastgate if we can't even get you know, our heads out of our butts in order to complete this first phase that's going to Queenston. That's just, it's not realistic. It's not how politics works. They're waiting to see if we can take, you know, have enough leadership to accept full capital funding. If we can't even do that, we're never going to get that extension to Eastgate. Well, and there's always this propensity on some people's part anyway, Ryan, uh, no matter what the project, to look at something shiny and, and brand new someplace else and say, why can't we do this? And you heard this, uh, I certainly did, through the stadium debate some years ago. Why can't we build a stadium like the, the one they have in Winnipeg? And, and the short answer is it costs twice as much money. Do you want to pay that? You're, you're willing to pony? No, no. But Well, you get what you pay for. You know, for the money we had, that's the stadium we built, and I'm quite happy with the one we've got here. By the way, oh, as, yeah. a, as a quick postscript to that, uh, the Winnipeg Stadium, which was uh, so grand, they're, they're just spending $21 million on repairs to that one, too. So we're not alone, which, which tells sure. us that, you know, to your point, 
we got to get out of this idea that this is a Hamilton-centric problem. Transportation is, is a in this case, a provincial problem. I, I, I would like to expand the decision and, and actually the debate to make this a national problem, too, because every city's going through this right now. Oh, sure. But on, on that note, do you think the federal government is going to be willing to partner with us on an investment in a significant improvement to our transportation system if we can't actually say yes to a billion dollars in full capital funding from the province? I mean, they'd be crazy to do that. Well, they're simply not going to do it. I mean, you know, we get bypassed then. Like, you can't play ball with these guys. Exactly. Yeah. So we need to, you know, council needs to, you know, one of the other, one of the important differences between Hamilton and uh, and Waterloo, and this is something that we really should focus on, Waterloo is paying 30% of the capital cost for their LRT system through their own local tax levy. That's $253 million of local money that they're putting towards this thing. And because they're going to own it, they have to pay the debt financing, the uh, life cycle, and the insurance costs. We're not going to have to pay those things because Metrolinx is going to own our LRT line. So uh, Waterloo is actually in for an awful lot more money than we're going to be in for. And they still went ahead and decided to do it because they realized that the alternative of not building it, not intensifying that corridor, is going to cost them a lot more money in building new roads and new sprawl, which they can't afford to keep growing out like that. One of the other arguments that I know is going to come up once again today is, well, we should be spending that money on something else. Can we clarify for the umpteenth time here? that this is not money for roads and infrastructure, that if we say no to this $1 billion, that that $1 billion is going someplace else? Gone. Immediately. That money is gone. Now, in fairness to the people who've been saying, well, we could submit a different plan, we could. We absolutely could. It's going to take probably five or six years of starting from scratch to develop a new plan. You'll then have to submit that plan to a new provincial government whose priorities we have no idea what they're going to be. There is absolutely no guarantee that it would ever get funding. Even if it did, it would probably be several more years of shaking out the details and getting contracts signed. The la- it's taken us a decade to get to this point. If we start over, it's at least a decade to get to this point again. And there's nothing to stop the obstructionists and the opponents from playing all the same games and killing it all over again. The reality here is I, I, I could make a pretty safe bet, and I think you could too, where this money is going. I mean, Mississauga right now is in the process of going through this this LRT thing, and they're looking for funding. Uh, they're looking for the same deal that Hamilton got. You know, and, and again, we always feel as if, well, we're getting crapped on by senior levels of government. This is a sweetheart deal that the province has given us here. As I know that Mayor Watson in Ottawa uh, and, of course, uh, Mayor Crombie in, 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 in Mississauga and certainly John Tory in Toronto are saying, hey, where's the 100% funding for us? Uh, and they're not getting it. And, and if we say no to this, I, I don't see how any future government would ever look at the city once again and say, yeah, we'll help you fund major projects. They can't trust us as a partner. Oh, exactly. We would be a radioactive partner. And not just for higher levels of government. If you're a business and you're looking to invest, are you going to invest in a city that can't get its act together? Or are you going to invest in a city that looks like it's being run by responsible adults who understand a good deal when they see it? You know, large corporations that are going to be generating jobs, you know, doing investment in building new facilities, they're going to be running away from Hamilton if they see us fumble the ball and and basically not even fumble the ball. I mean, we're already standing at the finish line. All we have to do is just set it down. If we throw the ball backwards over our shoulders, I mean, that's going to scare off uh, the private sector as well in a big way. To that point... One of the other elements that you have been talking about, Keenan Loomis has been talking about, Mayor Eisenberger has been talking about, and Councillor Ferguson, uh, my councillor up in Ancaster, who's a, an advocate for the LRT program, 
is the economic development aspect. And, and it is usually dismissed out of hand by the, the opponents of the project who simply say that's not going to happen. Now, I, I'm not looking at this with rose-colored glasses, Ryan. I, I don't think that there's going to be massive economic upburst all the way along the line. I just don't think that's going to happen. But I think there's significant possibilities for a lot of it in key areas, uh, yet that doesn't seem to be part of the debate. They don't seem to want to talk about that. No, and it, again, it's that, it's sort of, you know, if, if we don't know what the cost is going to be, we assume it'll be as high as possible. If we don't exactly know what the benefit's going to be, we assume it'll be as low as possible. Be, there'll be no benefit, right? I mean, the developers are already saying loud and clear, publicly in Hamilton, if it wasn't for the LRT, this project wasn't going to go ahead. I mean, we're hearing that right now for projects that are already on the go. You go to Waterloo, and it's well over a billion dollars of new development that's happened right along the LRT corridor. These are projects that were not going ahead. And if you look back at five years before the LRT project started, the development rate was much lower. I mean, this is, you know, no one can say there's going to be precisely this much new development, but we know it's going to be big. And it's going to take time, you know, and it'll start in the downtown core, and it'll gradually move farther east and west. But we're looking at tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in new tax assessments over the next 25 years that we're going to say, we're going to walk away from, we're going to leave on the table if we turn this down. Which I, th- I think underscores the point that you've been talking about and, and Keenan Loomis and others. What's the cost of not doing this? Uh, and instead of uh, you know, focusing and saying, well, we don't know every penny of, of the cost of, of maintaining this project or the upkeep on this project, uh, what's the cost if we don't do this? What, what kind of damage does this do to our economic future that has been actually on, on pretty much of an upswing over the last eight or ten years? It has been, but, you know, one of the problems is that structurally, the city still doesn't have its finances in order. You know, every year we have, you know, close to $200 million in necessary infrastructure replacement, which we defer because we can't afford to do it. And a big part of that is the way the city has been developing for the past 50 years. It's all been very uh, low low density, low intensity, high infrastructural intensity, right? So we're building lots of roads. We're laying miles and miles of water and sewer lines that we have to maintain. We're you know, having to provide police and fire service and waste collection and all of these services in a very spread out geographic area. It turns out that it's, it's unaffordable to keep doing that. The only way we can continue to pay for the infrastructure that we have is if we start making much more effective use of infrastructure through the downtown corridor, start increasing the density, increasing the tax assessment, and that will help to pay for the whole city. Let me ask you something about about strategy here. And and I know you've written extensively about this for, well, I guess really for almost 10 years now. That This project has been talked about, uh, written about, uh, you know, vocalized and dragged through the mud and, and elevated to the highest heights. I mean, we've gone through just about every machination you could possibly be here. But for those who support the project and continue to support the project, have they done a good enough job of selling this to the public, or did they just naturally assume that this was such a great idea that the public would gravitate toward it? It's it's a it's a tough question. Uh, it's a fair question. I don't know if it's one that I can be entirely objective about because as one of the people who's been trying to sell this project, uh, I certainly wish that I could have done more along the way. I wish I could have heard more from our political leaders. Uh, I wish we could have heard more from Metrolinx. I wish our councillors who have been voting for this were willing to go beyond just voting for it and actually going out and championing it with your constituents. And I want to be fair. Some councillors have absolutely been doing that. You mentioned Councillor Ferguson earlier on, and I think he has been just a really inspiring ambassador for this project because it's not going to go into his ward. He doesn't directly 
personally benefit from it in any way, but he sees the big picture and he recognizes the way that it's going to, that's going to benefit his constituents. And he's been promoting and selling it on that basis, and he's not paying a political price for supporting it. You know, and he's been an amazing champion, but we need more champions like that around the council table. Well, we need more champions in the community as well. He was one of the early people that jumped on board on this because he's one of the people that took the road trips. I've always advocated that, that councillors get out of their shell every now and then and, and go and see how things are going. Don't just read about it. I mean, the Internet's a wonderful thing. But, but there are so many councillors here who just don't partake in any of those planning conferences or any of these other things that have gone on. And as a result, they, they're very insular when it comes to these things. So they, they, they look at these things in the abstract. But Councillor Ferguson and, and Councillor Powers, Russ Powers from Dundas at the time, and, and a couple of others actually made those road trips to all these other cities that we've talked about. And it wasn't just, well, won't be need if this. They saw that in, ap- in, 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 in application. They've seen what it does. They've seen the economic development to this. Uh, and I think that changes people's opinions. Absolutely it does, yeah. And, you know, and we have a wonderful example. We just have to drive to Waterloo and see what's happening there. You know, look at all the new developments. Look at the new, you know, the tower cranes going up. Look at the applications coming through the pipeline. Um, for that matter, right here in Hamilton, you know, uh, I mean, we're hearing from the planning department that there are applications coming through the pipeline right now that are citing LRT as one of the clinching factors. You know, the, the evidence is there if you're willing to have an open mind about it. And, uh, and we, we really need our councillors just to have a little bit of courage and, and a little bit of, of uh, a belief in the possibility of this thing in order to move it forward. We're never going to have all of the answers for a project this big until it's done. But we know we have enough information that we know that the risk of turning it down is much higher than the risk of saying yes. What do you expect is going to happen today? My, my gut is that they are not even going to vote on this thing. They're probably going to kick it down the road. But time's running out. I mean, we're hearing from staff that this pretty much has to be decided. I'm talking about the environmental assessment aspect sometime by, before the end of the month. Oh, yeah, it really does, because this, this does have a very tight timeline. And, you know, again, there's this, always this idea that, oh, these projects always go over time and over budget. Well, this project is on time and on budget. You know, and if, if that comes into jeopardy, it's going to be because of political interference, not because of bureaucratic ineptitude. And so this is, council is, this is their moment. This is their moment to define their legacy for their entire political careers. Did they have the courage to do the right thing and move this project forward? Or did they panic and cower and back away and allow this opportunity to fall apart? I, I don't know how it's going to go. I'm, I'm as excited to find out as you are. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.